Welcome to another Calvary Baltimore B-Side with our senior pastor, Josh Plantholt. B-Sides are a companion to the weekly sermon, giving an in-depth look behind the teaching. And now with running commentary to complement this week's sermon, here's Pastor Josh. Welcome to B-Sides. Uh, we are in Revelation chapter 11 today. We are... Uh... Uh, focusing on verses 1 through 14 with an emphasis on verse 4. Uh, sorry if I sound kind of nasally today. I uh, Yesterday I started to feel sinus infection-y, and by the time I got done church, I was like, oh no, <laughs> I was in bad shape. Um, so I took a nap, uh, took care of the kids, and then and then I went to bed early last night and I slept in which I feel out of sorts because it's the first time in a long time I haven't been up early to pray and read. And Normally I hit the gym on Monday, but I needed sleep. So I feel a lot better, but I'm still a little, oh. <laughs> so if, if I sound more annoying than usual, then just uh, bear with me. This this won't be forever, ideally. Um, anyways, w- uh, welcome. Uh, welcome to B-Sides, Revelation 11. Um <clears throat> Let's jump right in. We have some, of course, we're going to focus. I, I, I taught Sunday on verse four, uh, but I wanted to, I had another quarter of a teaching that I just didn't want to blow out. So we have some other verses I want to look at here. So this is a special episode. Um, so let's get right into verse one. Uh, Revelation 11. Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. But do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. Who are these two witnesses? I have been waiting to talk about this since I looked at chapter 11, but here we are at the end, and I want to kind of run you through my thought process on who these two witnesses are, who I think they are. Um, And and let me first say this. (laughs) Sounds like something absolutely ridiculous, but it's something that must be said. Who are the two witnesses? First, it's none of us. (laughs) I have known, and this is not a joke, I have known three different people who thought they were or once were one of the two witnesses in Revelation 11. They were convinced it was them. These two witnesses have been been given by God, and from the language used, it seems that they have come down from heaven. So, uh, first point here, it's none of us. We are not the two witnesses. Uh, now, beyond that, uh, I'd like to go to the early church. To uh, the, the term is called the Patristic Fathers. So, there's church fathers. Uh, and, you know, that could go up to right after Jesus, the apostles, uh, all the way up to 700 you know, you, you could kind of classify those as church fathers, give or take. Um, but the, the patristic fathers are, are the early, early guys. Um, 
And one of the patristic fathers is a guy named Irenaeus. Irenaeus was the disciple of Polycarp. Polycarp was the disciple of John. And Irenaeus, one of his ministries was to write refutations against heresies. Um, and so the early church spent a lot of time dealing with false doctrine. And Irenaeus suggested that the elders and the disciples of the original apostles, so Polycarp and the like, taught that Enoch and Elijah had been taken up into paradise and were to remain there until the end of this age while awaiting transformation to an incorruptible state. So the early guys said that Enoch and Elijah were in heaven in their fallen bodies. They were taken up in their fallen bodies and they remain in their earthly bodies, waiting to be used by God for some service. Now, Irenaeus did not say that these were the two witnesses, just that they were they were reserved to be used for the end. So it could be Enoch and Elijah. Um, if not, if it's one of them, uh, then then there's a job, another task for another one of, of them. But um, that seems to be that the, the, what what's happening here. Um, and, and Elijah and, and Elijah. Uh, I'm sorry, Enoch and Elijah makes a lot of sense because both Elijah and, and Enoch, I mean, sorry, Elijah and Enoch make sense because both Elijah and Enoch were the only two men in the Bible taken before their death. So that that's a very viable view. It's, it's my second contender. Uh, now, if we go a little further in time, there's a man named Victoranius. Victoranius was the first person, uh, he, he's the earliest full-length commentary on Revelation that the church has. Really interesting, it's written in Latin, but besides the point, um, it's the earliest full-length commentary we have in Revelation, uh, and he proposed that these two men were Elijah and Jeremiah. And the reason he says that is because of the similarity of their ministries. Uh, some think uh, the two angels from Sodom. Uh, if you remember the story from uh, Sodom uh, and Gomorrah here, remember um, Abraham is, is camping out in the cool of the day and three men, one, one seems to be the Lord, Jesus, and Jesus is accompanied by two witnesses, two men. And Jesus sends those two men into Sodom to pull out Lot. Um, and so there's a lot of connections here. And also in Revelation 11, it says that uh, the, the city in which the Lord was crucified, Jerusalem, is symbolically Sodom. So there's a strong connection there. It could be the two angels from Genesis. Something Joshua and Caleb, uh, because Joshua and Caleb entered into the Holy Land to conquer it. <clears throat> uh, some Paul and Peter, because why not, I guess. Some think these two are symbolic of the whole church. Um, possible. Uh, however, the, the most popular theory, and I'm the one I'm sure you've heard before, is Moses and Elijah. And this holds weight because of the Mount of Transfiguration. If you remember on this, the, the, in the gospel, there's a, a scene where Jesus goes up a mountain and uh, the disciples are behind him, the three, and they see Jesus talking with Elijah and talking with Moses. And here they are on this mountain. So there's a strong case that the ministry of Jesus is connected to Moses and Elijah, and, and maybe those are his two witnesses. Also, their ministries resemble these two men, both Moses, as he could 
turn the waters to blood, and Elijah as he stopped up the rain. Uh, also interesting, uh, Moses, when you read the death account of Moses in Deuteronomy 34, it says he died with plenty of strength left. So it's sort of an odd note, and so maybe there's a hint at his return one day. Uh, this also may make sense why uh, in, in the book of Jude, uh, which also comes from the ascension or the testament of Moses, why the devil, and, and we see this in the book of Jude, why the devil wanted the body of Moses. And Michael the archangel uh, wanted that body to bring it to God. So why does God need a dead body? <laughs> Maybe because he wants to repurpose it uh, in this last days. Again, what we don't know uh, and, and I think what's really important to note here is <laughs> we don't need to know. Guess what? If, if God wanted us to know, if we needed to know, he would have told us. But since he didn't tell us, we must not need to know who this is. That personally said, I don't think there's anything wrong with guessing. I personally believe this to be Elijah and Moses. Again, partly because of the story of the Transfiguration. Partly because the last two great witnesses to Jerusalem, and maybe that's not an appropriate way, but maybe the two greatest witnesses to Jerusalem were John the Baptist and Jesus. And remember, John the Baptist was said to have the spirit of Elijah. And Jesus in the gospel, specifically Matthew, was consistently uh, portrayed symbolically as a new Moses. So John and Jesus were alluded to as Elijah and Moses. It would make sense for these two witnesses then in Revelation 11 to be Elijah and Moses. But finally, and my number one reason to think Moses and Elijah, and I haven't heard this anywhere else, but just something I was reflecting on is because of Luke 16.31. In Luke 16, we have the parable of Lazarus and the rich man. And Lazarus is in Abraham's bosom and the rich man in Hades. And that story ends with the rich Jewish man asking for Abraham to warn and spare his Jewish brothers from Hades. And, and this is what it says, Luke 16, 27. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send into my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. So Moses and the prophets of which Elijah is a, is a prophet, is referenced here in the context of coming back to earth from the dead, being raised to this. Verse 30, and he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. If someone is sent by God from the dead, Abraham, they will repent and turn from their evil ways. Verse 31, and he said to them, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. The context here is that Jesus is telling a story about the hard-heartedness of the Jewish people, that they don't receive Moses or Elijah or Jesus for that matter. And even if they rose from the dead, they still wouldn't believe, which they didn't believe Jesus. And, and if this is Moses and Elijah, they're not going to believe them either. Now, Revelation chapter 11, if this is Moses and Elijah, like the wealthy Jewish man's cry in Luke 16, Moses and Elijah were raised from the dead and bore witness. And still they didn't believe. Abraham was right. 
If this is Moses and the prophets, Elijah, for three and a half years, they're still not going to believe. Now, an interesting connection if these two stories are connected, and they may not be, but if they are, interestingly, it, it isn't until the earthquake later in chapter 11 that Israel repents and the witnesses are believed. If you read, if you read the sequence of it, it says that they, the Spirit of God entered them, they rose up on their feet, and they all heard the voice come up here, and they ascend into heaven. And it's, then it says, and within the hour, an earthquake came, and then they gave glory to God. They didn't give glory to God until after the earthquake. So the resurrection of Moses and the prophets did not create belief even before the three and a half years nor after the three and a half years, even when they rose to dead in front of them. Abraham was right. But when they are raised from the dead and then God sends the earthquake, then they believe. So in some ways, Abraham is totally right. There's not a reversal there. But in other ways, Luke 16 is inverted in Revelation, and the two witnesses are raised with the earthquake, and then they do repent. There's almost a reversal that happens here. Again, not that it's contradictory. They didn't repent until the earthquake. The resurrection wasn't enough, but God sent the resurrection and the earthquake, almost two testimonies of what to validate what they were saying, and then they repented. So there's maybe an inversion of the story here as then Israel then comes to believe and their hearts are softened. Uh, verse 4, I thought that was really cool. <laughs> verse 4, these are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. Uh, two thoughts on verse 4. As I pointed out Sunday that Revelation 11 draws heavily from Zechariah 4. What I did not point out is the context of the book of Zechariah, and that is of Israel returning to faith in the Lord. So when we read Revelation 11, and it's constantly alluding to Zechariah 11, we have a rise, we have lampstands, we have witnesses, we have temples. As Revelation 11 is, is alluding to Zechariah's prophecy about Israel being restored and turning to God through Joshua the high priest, which is coming in Zechariah, this all tells us that the restoration of Israel through Joshua, which is Jesus' name, <laughs> which is Jesus' name in the, in the Old Testament, Joshua the high priest in Zechariah is really Jesus the high priest is in view here as Jesus is introduced in Revelation 1 as a high priest. Now, I have something on my heart. Hear me out. So far in this book, my post-millennial brothers have been crushing it. So one of the things that I do as your pastor, if I am your pastor, is I read lots of different source materials. I do not just read people that I agree with or agree with me. In fact, most of the people I read in Revelation think very differently than I think. And so far in the book of Revelation, these post-millennial brothers that I, I really take a liking to have been crushing it. Honestly, they've been far better and more consistent than most of my pre-millennial brothers, whom I love and I more align with. 
But as soon as I got to this chapter, chapter 11, as well as the story of the 144,000, uh, it was pretty plain too. The wheels really seem to come off of the post-millennial cart. <laughs> I've seen these men be so brilliant, chapter after chapter. And then all of a sudden, when it comes to a clear restoration of Israel, it's like, oh, I, I don't know what's happening here. Uh, they just don't seem to have much to add. And then all of a sudden... They seem to have ignored the context of all of these allusion, Old Testament allusions here, like in Zechariah 4. You know, I think there's so much good in amillennialism, which has been the predominant church view, and postmillennialism, which is really resurging right now. But all signs here point to the restoration of Israel, which a lot of pre-mills uh, hold. Uh, and so Revelation 11, verse 4, drawing upon Zechariah 4's trees and lampstand imagery, is cluing us into what these two witnesses are here to do. It's very plain from reading Zechariah 4. This is all part of the restoration of Israel. We must see this. It's, it's very plain. And then verse, and then my, my second point, uh, thinking of God's people being filled with the Spirit as these two witnesses are, I can't help but to think, personally, that I want God to move mightily through us, through me, through through our church. I, I want our church to, to be so used by God. And thinking along these lines, especially as we draw from Acts chapter 2, is that if we, if you desire a mighty move of God, then one of the things I really think we need to gather from this is we need to be an empty vessel. We can't be so full that we can't be filled. And what I mean by that is when the Holy Spirit fell in Acts chapter 2, you had 3,120 people who came to the Word daily to be filled, who came to prayer to be filled, who came to fellowship with the saints to be filled. That they weren't so filled with their psychology and their and and their their sociology and their degrees and their insights that they needed to tell the apostles how to do things. No. It says they proskatereo apostolos didache that they studied and adhered to the apostles' teachings. The baptism of the Spirit led God's people first to the word. And so if we want, if you want, if I want, if we need a mighty move of God, then we need to start by giving ourselves to the truth, to the word of God, and then as Acts 2 lays out, to prayer and fellowship with Christians. And I am of the persuasion that God still does supernatural stuff every day. You know, I am a I am a book guy, but I also believe in the power of the Holy Spirit. I I believe God still me produces miracles every day and heals people every day, and I really believe God lays things on His people's hearts. I believe God is not only the God of who was, but I also believe in a God that God is the God of who is and who will be. But I also believe. That supernatural works 
amongst unscriptural people often leads to sinfulness and idolatry. If God started pouring out miracles in, in, in churches across the country, we, we may think, wow, people would come to Christ, there would be revivals if God just started healing everybody. But the reality is without the knowledge of God, it will all be misinterpreted. You remember God parted the Red Sea and what did the people almost immediately do? They gave glory to a golden calf. They didn't quite know God and so they misinterpreted all the miracles. And Saul, remember Saul won a supernatural battle and what was his instinct? To build a monument to himself. Jesus casts, remember when Jesus cast the legions uh, into the pigs and all the pigs ran off the cliff and it says that the people kicked him out of the town. They were afraid. They didn't understand. When Paul and Barnabas uh, healed a lame man in Lystria, uh, remember it says that the people freaked out. I want to read this to you, Acts 14.11. The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. That's what the people say. Paul and Silas, or Paul and Barnabas heal somebody, and they say, oh, they're the gods. Barnabas they called Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance of the city, brought oxen and garland to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. But when the apostle Barnabas Bar and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed into the crowd crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you. And we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made heaven and earth and see, and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk their own ways, yet he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heavens and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifices to them. Without knowledge and truth of God, gifts and miracles are misunderstood and misrepresented. And this is why the structure of Acts 2 shows that the miracles stem from first getting into the presence of God. If there's going to be miracles amongst us, we need to know God first. Otherwise, we're going to misinterpret the whole thing and worst of all, create idols. Until there is a knowledge and a reverence for God, the miracles will be misunderstood, create idolatry, and cause chaos. That's just the way it is through the Bible, and it is the way now, and we see in some of these circles, church circles, uh, in our own country. Um, so, I've been working hard today, even though I'm sick, I love you all. <laughs> uh, I have figured out a way to share my screen uh, with you all. So I want to read verse 5 here. Yay! You can see my mouse. Uh, now, I want you to notice there's an ABAB structure here. So I'm going to start pointing out the structure of this passage 
uh, so you can see what I'm seeing. Um, verse 5, and A, if anyone would harm them, B, fire pours from their mouths and consumes their foes, A, if anyone would harm them, do you see the harm? If anyone would harm them, if anyone would harm them, B, this is how he is doomed. Uh, in the Greek, we have die. Uh, it is uh, to be killed. This is how B, this is how he is doomed. Die to be killed. So the A's are cluing us that there's a chiastic structure here. They're saying the same things. And so B is the thought that they're building upon. Uh, so if anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouths, it consumes their foes, and this is how he is doomed to be killed. That, that word die there, it, it, it means it is binding, it is necessary. This is the emphasis here. This, this is the emphasis of verse five. That if fire, if anyone harms them, fire comes from their mouths and consumes their foes, and it is necessary. It is binding for them to be killed, that these are God's prophets, and no one is allowed to hurt them. These are God's people, and they will be struck. They will be smitten. Uh, it is absolutely necessary for God to repay this vengeance because of what their testimony is, and the chiastic structure helps us to, to see this here. And so, now, thinking... Thinking about verse 5, the fire coming from their mouths and where they're standing, these two witnesses are sent in tandem with John's measurement of the temple. By reading verses 1 through 3, uh, and even 4, it's clear to see that the temple and these men's, John's measurement of the temple and these two witnesses are to work side by side. These two witnesses are sent in tandem with John's measurement of the temple. Also, we know that they're in Jerusalem, and I suspect from the last B-side is that they are near the temple, maybe next to the altar. They are called, in verse 4, lampstands, connecting them with temple worship. In Zechariah, the temple, Zechariah 4, the temple is in view. So connecting all of these things, I have to wonder if the, if the fire, if their fire coming out of their mouth is maybe somehow connected with the story of Nadab and Abihu. I don't know, maybe I'm reaching, but I, I just, I see too many connections here to Leviticus 10. I want to read it to you, Leviticus 10.1. Now, Nahab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took a censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, strange fire, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from before the Lord. Um, and I, I take this to mean the temple. Fire came from the temple. It could mean heaven. Um, and I just haven't spent too much time there in the Hebrew. But it seems it comes from the temple and consumed them. And they died before the Lord. Then Moses and, uh, said to Aaron, this is what the Lord has said. Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified and before all the people, I will be glorified. And what did, what did they do in Revelation 11? After the fear fell upon them, they gave glory to God. And then Leviticus says, 
and Aaron held his peace. I wonder if the fire pouring from their mouths as they are said in verse four to stand in the presence of God. I wonder if those that are burnt up are burned in front of the temple grounds like Nahab and Abihu at the tabernacle. Again, I think this is also an indication of the placement of these two, that they may be in Temple Mount. And and this strange fire that we're seeing that there might be a connection here in Leviticus is an allusion to Israel's inappropriate worship. As they worship not Jesus, but to an empty temple and eventually to the Antichrist as they make an allegiance to him. So there's just a lot of parallels here uh, that, that make me wonder, maybe. Um, let's keep reading, and I'm going to do a screen share here, because I love you. Uh, uh-oh. Yay! <laughs> this is all new to me. I'm very excited. Um Verse 6, and I want you to start noticing the threes here. And if you're listening to this, you'll, you'll be able to hear it. Um, so verse 6, 1, they have the power to shut up the sky that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. So 1, they have the power to shut the sky. Uh, 2, and they have the power over the waters. Now we have sky and water to turn them in the blood. And 3, to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. So we have sky, waters, earth. So what we see is they, they have power over three. There's a three here. Remember, Revelation loves threes and sevens. Here we see a three, and we see all of God's creation, sky, water, and earth. Verse seven. And when they had finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them, one, and conquer them two, and kill them three. So we have make war, conquer, and kill. We, there, there's the three there again. Revelation loves threes. Verse eight. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that is symbolically. Uh, remember that the, that's a connection to Babylon here. Uh, and their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that is symbolically, that symbolically is called Sodom two and Egypt three, where their Lord was crucified. For three, verse nine, for three and a half days, some of the peoples, uh, and tribes, uh, some of the peoples and tribes and languages and nations. Oh, well, I butchered that one. <laughs> and will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them, one, and make merry, two, and exchange presents, three. Because these two prophets have been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. Again, we have um, we have verse ten. Dwell on the earth. We have dwell on the earth here. There's a chiasm somewhere. I just ran out of time because I just figured out on a screen share like an hour ago. <laughs> but after the three and a half days, at one, a breath of life from God entered them. Two, and they stood up on their feet. Okay, now there's there's two sets of threes here. At one, and great fear fell on those who saw them. So the, a breath of life from God entered them is of the witnesses. 
And they stood up on their feet. Number two is of the witnesses. And now the number one is of the people. And great fear fell on those who saw them. And number two, they heard a loud voice from heaven saying, come up here. So the people heard. Then number three, for the witnesses, and they went up to heaven in a cloud. So a breath of life from God entered them. They stood on their feet and went up to heaven on a cloud. Three. And then the three for the people and their enemies watched them. So one, great fear fell on the people who saw them. One. They saw, they heard a loud voice from heaven, and they watched. So the, the people, the testimony of their resurrection here in Ascension is they saw, they heard, and they watched what God was doing with them. Verse 13, and at that hour there was a great earthquake, one, and a tenth of the city fell, two, and 7,000 people were killed in the great earthquake. This is also an ABA structure. Uh, verse 13 is, there was A, great earthquake, B, and a tenth of the city fell, A, 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake. We have a great earthquake, we have a great earthquake, with the center being a tenth of the city fell, which is, you know, 7,000 people. So this tenth, the, the tenth of the city fall is the, is the center of this chiasm. The A's work together. The great earthquake is that 7,000 people died, but the focal point is that a tenth of the city fell. Again, I would propose that the tenth, the tenth being, the, the, the tenth being the, the, the focal point there, maybe because it's Temple Mount. Maybe Temple Mount is the tenth of the city that falls. So whatever this, Tenth of the city fell. There's an emphasis there. We don't know exactly what portion of the city fell, but we do know is that when it fell, that was a really significant falling, wherever that is. Um, and, and I would argue the, the temple mount there. Uh, keep reading. And the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe is past, verse 14, and behold, the third woe is to come soon. Okay. Uh, I want to close with one thought here, and I hope that screen share was good. If that's something you'd like to see more of, please let me know, and I can do this more often and let you know. I can let you kind of see the scriptures as I do in their patterns, um, which I think help us read them better. So just I, give me feedback on that. That would be great. Um, uh one thought here, I want to close thinking on something that we haven't really addressed yet. And that's why did God allow these two witnesses to be killed? If we, if we think about it, Revelation chapter four and five, God is revealed as the power and the authority of the universe. But in Revelation chapter two and chapter three and chapter six, his people are being slaughtered left and right. And so it's really, when you read the book, it's almost like, well, what is it, God? Are you on the throne and in control or are your people being slaughtered wholesale? What, what's the deal here? Well, first, we have to understand that the death of God's people is not defeat. When we are crushed, we do not lose. What we have to understand is we look to our model, Jesus Christ, our Lord, our Kurios. 
we have to understand that Satan was never more defeated than at the cross. And then eventually the resurrection and ascension, it was at the cross that God secured his people. That was, in a sense, we can start to think the apex of the kingdom's power. And as God's people, we are never more like Christ in his power over evil than we, when we too are being persecuted. You know, when you study not just the Bible, but church history, it becomes very plain that the church advances and grows under persecution. A Tertullian said to the Roman emperor of his day, quote, We are not a new philosophy, but a divine revelation. That is why you can't ex just exterminate us. What he told the emperor was, is, this isn't some new philosophy. This isn't some, this isn't uh, the enlightenment that we saw in the West. The, the more you kill, the more we, we are. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. You praise those who endure pain and death as long as they aren't Christians. Your cruelties merely prove our innocence of the crimes you charge against us. And you frustrate your purpose. Because those who see us die wonder why we do, for we die like the men you revere, not like slaves or criminals. And when they find out, they join us. These faithful Christians in the beginning, they died like the men that the Greeks and the Romans revered, men who died honorable and bravely. When St. Ignatius of Antioch was approaching his own martyrdom in the Colosseum around 110 AD, the report is, maybe a little suspect, but the report, it said that his dying words to the crowd were this, quote, when I began to be a disciple of Christ, I care for nothing, a visible uh, now, I begin to be a disciple of Christ. I care for nothing, a visible or invisible thing, so that I may but win Christ. Let fire and the cross, let the companies of wild beasts, let breaking of bones and tearing of limbs, let the grinding of my whole body and all the malice of the devil come upon me. Be it so, only may I win Jesus Christ. <laughs> Isn't that awesome? You know, listening to this as they're staring down lions that are ready to kill them brutally. It's no, it should come as no surprise listening to these men's speech why the more Romans, why the more Rome killed the Christians, the more Romans joined the church. People wanted what they had. A peace, a joy, a hope greater than the fear of a gruesome death. You see, the more we know and see of Christ, the more not only are we going to grow, I believe, in, in the miraculous, I also believe the more we're going to grow in boldness. As Jesus becomes our pearl of great price, we become willing to lose everything, if it be if we just have Christ. For the pearl, our Lord is worth more than all of it anyways. As, as, uh, as Ignatius of Antioch said, grind me. Grind me to bits. Let me be crushed for the gospel if it means that I end in Christ. 
And I think as we come to the knowledge of God, this becomes so plain. This becomes more and more evident, more and more of a force in our own lives as the church. And so that's it. <laughs> With that, let's, uh, let's pray and we will um, wrap up. God, we love you. We thank you for this chapter. We thank you for your time. We thank you for your people. God, we thank you uh, for all that you have provided for us. And God, we pray that you may grow us in the knowledge of you, in the knowledge of you, Father, of you, Son, and you, Spirit. Teach us to read our Bibles well and accurately and precisely and not inappropriately, we do pray. God, we ask for a mighty move of your spirit, God, and let that start with knowledge of you, followed by reverence, followed by mighty works. So, God, we do pray for a mighty, mighty move of your spirit amongst us. God, help us to be whatever you desire us to be, all things to all men, God. We so often pray that we can be like David, God, but sometimes we need to pray that we're more like Jonathan, <laughs> to just be a friend of a David. God, help us to surrender, God. You know, we, we all want to be do mighty things for the Lord, but maybe we just need to carry the bags for the mighty men and women of the Lord. God, whatever that may be, help us to just be faithful servants wherever you put us. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name, I love you guys so much. I'll see you Sunday. Pray that I'd feel better. I would really like to get to the gym tomorrow and get, get on with my normal routine. So I love you guys. Bye. Thanks for joining us for this Calvary Baltimore B-Side. If you'd like to get in touch or come visit us at Calvary Baltimore, our website is calvarychapelbaltimore.org. You can email us at calvary.faithlife at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. If you've been blessed by today's teaching and would like to donate to the work God is doing through Calvary Baltimore, go to our website at calvarychapelbaltimore.org and click Donate Now. Until next time, keep drawing closer to God through the reading of His Word. And join us again for the next Calvary Baltimore B-Side.